Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us spend part of the day with you, and hope you had a good weekend as we kick off this last week of February. A lot of weather stories across the country. A little bit of everything going on. DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson will join us a little bit later on to take a look at the weather forecast for this coming week as we wrap up February, look ahead to March, and also he's got some information concerning some real flood concerns, flooding concerns around the country and as we head into spring. So we'll get into that information. Lots of numbers and projections last week from the USDA Outlook Conference and, of course, lots of China news. We're going to talk with Steve Nicholson with Rabo AgriFinance, get his thoughts on all that and how the markets are looking at all that information. That's coming up a little bit later. And speaking of China, Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President for the U.S.-China Business Council, will join us later to give us her thoughts on the talks last week and all the news around the China-U.S. negotiations and where she sees all this heading, get her assessment and perspective. That's coming up later in the program. Lots going on. Let's uh, kick it off with Sarah Wyan, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, busy, busy time. I know you were busy last week at the USDA Outlook Conference. Yes, Mike, good morning. It was a pleasure to be part of the panel on biotechnology for both crops and livestock, uh, moderating four distinguished panelists last week and having a chance to see not only Secretary Purdue, but uh, the ag ministers from both Canada and Mexico. We interviewed the Canadian one after the session and just a, a really busy week as all the people that come together for Ag Outlook and try to get a grasp of what's going to lie ahead in this very rapidly changing environment. You know, when those three ag ministers get together, you get the feeling that if, if they were in charge of everything, of all the negotiations, we'd get this thing hammered out fairly quickly. But we know that a lot of decisions have to be made by people above them and their various governments. So there's still a ways to go, even if these three are on the same page. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And we found out they actually have a pretty good personal relationship. Um, mm -hmm. Minister McCauley told us that he has been to Sunny Purdue's farm and vice versa. Uh, they've become personal friends. And so there is a very good relationship between all three of, of the individuals. But as you say, Mike, there's a lot of other people involved. And especially when it comes to trade, you can understand that even Secretary Purdue understands the frustration that Canada and Mexico have because those 232 steel and aluminum tariffs are still on, despite the fact that we're trying to seal the deal and get USMCA approved through our Congress and be ratified by the others. So um, there's a feeling that those should be lifted, but clearly the president is not in agreement right now. So we'll see when that may happen and, and what the strategy will be to try to get this congressional approval that's so sorely needed in order to get this deal moving ahead. It almost feels like that's his bargaining ship. When it gets time to really negotiate with Congress on USMCA, I just wonder if it, you know, that's kind of what he's holding in his back pocket. Saying, okay, I can lift those if that'll clear the way to get get it passed. Right. He does have to keep that, I think, as a bargaining chip. But at the same time, there's still a lot of folks, especially in agriculture, who are hurting and their markets are being derailed as a result of that. And so you can see that, you know, the pork producers have reached out and, and, and expressed their concern and others who said, hey, we've got to get 
trade moving again with our two most important trading partners. So I think it's going to be a real balancing act, especially as he tries to advance not only USMCA, but as you mentioned, there's a lot moving on the China front, especially since his big announcement, his tweets yesterday and his talk to the nation's governor, where he said that he's going to extend his March 1 deadline for China to reach an agreement. And he talked about how you know, his tweet was a very good weekend for U.S. and China. So people are somewhat optimistic, but also I think at the same time, Mike, they're very cautiously worried because maybe the president wants to get a deal so eagerly that perhaps he will move ahead without getting the long-term structural changes that everybody's been holding out for. Yeah, that's all the buzz right now and the excitement. What's going to happen here? And you're right, uh, the 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 extension, I think that was kind of expected, but it's still, I think, a positive sign. But, yeah, it's hard to imagine that all of a sudden all those big ticket issues, those big picture issues have all been resolved or, or that close to being resolved. Right. Uh, from the people that I was talking to last week, I don't think they have been, but obviously there has been progress. And one of the areas, and I'm sure your, your guests later on will be talking about this, is one of the areas of concern is how do we get to enforcement of this agreement. You know, we've had deals with the Chinese in the past and even WTO uh, commitments that they've made as a result of challenges, and for a decade they haven't been enforced. So what's going to be different this time? And I think commodity groups are especially concerned that buying some, you know, 10 million metric tons of soybeans is certainly something that's very positive, but at the same time, are we just going to nickel and dime and, you know, uh, try to, to show some signs of good faith but not make those long-term structural changes is really where I think people are most concerned. Meanwhile, at the USDA Outlook Conference last week, uh, China kind of was a big part of everything, right? It impacted the numbers from last year and impacted the projections for this year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's really the, the, the big kahuna, so to speak, in the room when you're looking at these things. And you know, the the toughest thing for me was to watch those projections for long-term net farm income. And certainly I think people would like to be more optimistic, but $66 billion and not expected to go above $80 billion in a decade, you know, that's not really a, a long-term trend that I think a lot of people would like to see. Yeah, and uh... – you wonder if a China deal, I mean, some people almost act like it's going to fix everything, and, it, you know, that's unrealistic. So it, we need a lot of other things to happen to really turn this ag economy around. Meanwhile, we head to Orlando this week for Commodity Classic. It'll be interesting to see what the, uh, those ag leaders uh, have to say about uh, these current events and uh, how optimistic they are about moving forward uh, with uh, these different issues. Yeah, I'm really interested in talking to a lot of folks about how their patience is holding out because the folks that I talked to, the farmers, even at last week's Outlook conference, I had a couple come up to me and say, you know, we're not going to be able to hang on a lot longer if these trade wars continue. And so I could sense a growing frustration, especially with the dairy guys that I talked to, and you can see why when you look at some of their numbers. But there's a, a feeling that the, the president could start to lose some support across the heartland and with his rural base if this drags out much past, let's say, April and, and certainly not into May. So um, it will be interesting to see. Mike, you probably remember last year there was a real uh, sort of uh, 
Purdue over E15 mm-hmm. and what he was doing on ethanol, and that's all been calmed down. Uh, so this year, I think the, the folks that they're going to be looking at to be very concerned about are not only what's happening on trade, but I'm sure you're going to hear a little bit about Budweiser versus Coors as well. Mm-hmm. Should be interesting. We'll see you this week in Orlando. Thanks, Sarah. Looking forward to it, Mike. Okay, take care. Sarah Wyatt, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications, Commodity Classic this week in Orlando, Florida. I'll be broadcasting Thursday and Friday from Commodity Classic. Coming up next, lots of weather news. We'll talk with DTN meteorologist Bryce Anderson next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. We're live on the red carpet, waiting for the next generation Creden soybean. There he is. Oh, Ed, look, it's Creden's Liberty Link GT27. I know, Adna. He's got elite genetics. You gotta love his four bushel per acre yield advantage. And he's both Liberty and glyphosate herbicide tolerant. Definitely the year's hottest performer. Ask your Credenz retailer about the new Credenz Liberty Link GT27 soybeans. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. It does, Mike, and uh, this winter in particular is uh, pretty much dragging along. And I think I think what we are seeing is uh, that that we had a fairly mild winter going on up until that uh, latter part in January, latter part of January, when the cold outbreak developed. And uh, ever since, uh, it has been a real rip roaring scenario uh, for many areas. Uh, kind of uh, over the northern two-thirds of the U.S. And uh, if we would have had this happen back in December, we could have dealt with it okay. But the fact that the onset was during the end of January and into February and through February, I think is uh, has pretty much uh, you know run everybody's uh, tolerance level for the winter season pretty much uh, to the end of its rope. And I, I think that's the... That's the whole thing. It, it goes back to the cliche that, that we have, uh, you know, come to uh, know and love, and that is timing is everything. And uh, the timing of uh, this trend was certainly uh, one that caused a lot of stress. Well, I was thinking over the weekend watching the, you know, news from different parts of the country. Here in Illinois, where I'm at, we were just getting rocked by high winds Uh but as I was watching the news, it seemed like if you started in California, went clear across the country, uh, there were some pretty big weather events uh, happening uh, just about everywhere you looked. There really were. Uh, the, the extent and uh, the intensity of that storm system that, that uh, we had uh, is really impressive. And, and in fact, uh, it's not over with yet because uh, in the northeastern U.S., uh, they're getting snowfall and very strong winds today. So the energy from that storm is still with us uh, over the northeastern uh, quarter of the country. And along with that, there's uh, probably going to be some very heavy snowfall in in the eastern Great Lakes because of lake effect snow. Uh, So we think about the very heavy rainfall uh, that occurred in the far west and in the mid-south and in parts of the southeastern Midwest, uh, we had that going on, uh, so there's a, a lot of flood concerns. And then uh, the heavy snow that, that uh, developed after a pretty notable round of sleet and freezing rain 
uh, which, uh, you know, caused the slick roads. The snow came in, so you had the snow on top of the, uh, of the uh, icy roads that created, uh, you know, just a, a horrendous round of uh, traffic issues. And, and then along with that, the blizzard-strength winds that were still in effect uh, during uh, Saturday, Sunday, and even in the parts of today, Monday, in, in uh, the Great Lakes. Uh, it, it was uh, just incredible. And, in fact, uh, as we're visiting right now, I'm not sure that Interstate 35 in Minnesota and northern Iowa is open yet uh, because of it. they're still trying to plow out and uh, get things organized there after the uh, snowfall and the blizzard that they had. Well, let's talk about flooding because there's already flooding going on in places, as you mentioned, but the potential for a lot more as we go to spring is really uh, that's a pretty widespread, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, now I, I am going to uh, kind of blow my own horn a little bit here because I, I have been uh, discussing the uh, prospect of a, of a uh, wet ground pattern and the potential for that to cause uh, slowdowns in, in spring field work since back in November. I, I was very worried about that all the way through. And um, along with that, there was a flood a flood uh, component in there, but mainly in the Mid-South. But, uh, you know, we go into the end of February now, and um, the, the uh, flood forecasts are pretty much reaching an alarm level all the way from the northern plains through the Midwest into the Delta, the Mid-South, and then into the Mid-Atlantic area, kind of that interior part of the Northeast, the Upper Ohio Basin. Uh, you know, Mike, when you look at... Uh, at a soil moisture percentile map, uh, which would show the amount of soil moisture that is in the ground right now relative to a long-term average. You can go from central Kansas and central Nebraska and central South Dakota all the way east to the east coast, to uh, the New Jersey coastline and uh, south to Pennsylvania, and, and you're going to see almost the that entire extent of country with a soil moisture value or a soil moisture level that is in the 99th percentile relative to average. That means basically that the ground is full and it, it is not going to take uh, very much moisture to, to move uh, things into a flood stage level. And then on top of that, we have all of this snow that uh, the uh, fear is that it's a uh, uh, not going to melt in a real order, orderly fashion. It's all going to melt at once, and then that's that's going to drive a, a real flood threat as we think about the end of February and then on into March. So it's uh, really at the top of a lot of folks' um, attention list right now. We're talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. And, Bryce, how unusual is that historically when we look back at past years? How unusual is it to have that situation that widespread? Well, uh, in, in terms of uh, that, that extent of, uh, of territory, I, I think it's uh, you know, kind of right there in, in its own uh, category, Mike, because I was on a conference call last week with uh, NOAA forecasters uh, in thinking about the uh, spring season and so forth, and, and uh, folks really had to, uh, to dig real hard to find any sort of year where uh, there was any uh, sort of comparison uh, uh, Dennis Toddy, who uh, is the uh, the director of the U.S. Uh, Climate Hub in uh, Ames, Iowa, said that, you know, in the late 70s, uh, they were pretty cold consistently throughout the winter. 
but uh, there still wasn't anything quite like what we've got going on right now. And as far as a, a wetness comparison, uh, Jim Knoll, who is the Ohio State hydrologist, said that he can uh, look at 1948-49, 1949 and 50, and 2007-2008, and that's it. So, so this year is... is uh, in, in kind of a class by itself, but as far as uh, the prospect for some delays in spring field work, we have had those in the past uh, number of years, like the 2008 planting season. That was a kind of a wet year, the way things turned out. Uh, 2011 was pretty uh, late. Uh, we had uh, some, some uh, slow years in uh, 2013, you know, about six years ago, and uh, even 2014, and or I should say 2015, was uh, kind of a wet year, but not over the extent of ground that we're looking at. And I think that's where this year is uh, sort of carving its own path, so to speak. All right, so what do we expect this coming week as we get ready to turn the calendar to March? Will March come in like a lion or a lamb, you think? March is going to come in like like a snow leopard, I think, because of how cold it's going to be. How does that sound? That's you know? good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you. Uh, the the uh, pattern is going to still be on the cold side for for much of the northern two thirds of the country, and uh, that's going to be a big feature all the way through the uh, first uh, ten days or so of March for sure. Now in the south, from uh, you know, I'd say about Interstate 44 or Interstate 40 south. Uh, it's going to be pretty mild, and uh, so that's going to be, you know, a, a different uh, pattern there. But the uh, prospect for rainfall is still going to be with us, especially over the southeast, and then uh, with the onset of uh, some wintry moisture from that big storm that's forming right now along the west coast, that's going to be with us through this week. And, and still, we are going to have uh, the prospect for some pretty uh, notable wind chills as well, Mike, especially in the northern plains and in the northern and the western and the central Midwest. That's not going to, um, to ease up, notably, uh, for these uh, last few days of February. So more of the same, basically. That's, that's the way we're looking right now, certainly to end out the month. And uh, getting into March, it uh, is still going to take, it's going to take some time now to uh, warm things up uh, over the areas that have the snow cover because we know that snow uh, has a way of keeping the air kind of chilled before we really get that uh, snow cover uh, melted to any great extent. And so that's going to be a part of things as we think about the next couple weeks. Well, for those of us uh, anxious for spring, it's a psychological barrier and hurdle to overcome just to turn that calendar from February to March. But although it doesn't sound like your forecast is going to uh, to uh, enhance that uh, good feeling very much. So we'll just uh, wait a little longer, it sounds like, and hope that things uh, turn around soon. As always, Bryce, thanks for your perspective and update on the weather. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Always good to talk to you. Take care. DTM Meteorologist. Bryce Anderson. All right, so the markets have lots of news uh, to look at. USDA Outlook Conference and projections last week, and of course, all the talk about U.S. and China, and a deal may be coming uh, next month. The uh, trade deadline has been extended. The president talking about getting close to some uh, uh, big news uh, when it comes to U.S. China trade. How are the markets reacting to all this? Steve Nicholson with uh, Robo AgriFinance joins us next to get into all that. Stay with us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. 
Powerful. Effective. Proven. Tough. Consistent. Reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds. All backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Lots of information for the markets to uh, react to. Let's talk about it with Steve Nicholson, Vice President, Robo Research Food and Agribusiness, Grains and Oil Seeds Analyst. Steve, thanks for joining us. Are the markets, are the traders as optimistic about a U.S.-China trade deal as President Trump uh, seems to be? Well, it's, you know, I would say it's a mixed reaction here this morning. I mean, corn's kind of unchanged, and beans are up five or six, and, you know, wheat's down quite a bit, about over, you know, almost a dime across all three wheat classes. So I, I don't know that I would say traders are as optimistic as the president has let out to be here this morning. Um, and I, you know, I think too, you know, Robert Lighthizer has been pretty realistic about this. And as again, I think as we talked before, I think watch his clues because he's going to be the key as to, you know, how this will go forward and how how optimistic or not to be um, going forward. But yeah, it's. I guess the other thing too is it's like we said also, you know, these is going to be pretty volatile, particularly beans, uh, and probably moves up and down. You know, up move ups are probably opportunities for sell for buyers or for farmers to get some marketing um, sales off yeah we get you know we get another bit of news that china's going to buy some more soybeans and while that is good news if we look at the big picture it's still far from where they used to be well exactly and i think that's the the key is and it's you know one of the things that's really interesting is that you know the chinese have promised this have not said anything about you know what's the quantity when is it going to be we're going to buy 30 billion dollars worth of u.s agricultural goods but if you look at the numbers as far as what they have bought, you know, this year compared to a year ago, you know, a year ago at this time they were like 24, over 24 million metric tons. And this year I think, you know, we're not, I don't think we're even at 2 million metric tons. So, you know, big differences of where we were, you know, versus a year ago. So there's, there's a lot of makeup to do if you want to put it that way. It's going to be interesting to see what they do announce if they do announce a deal. It's hard to imagine they've worked out everything on intellectual property and those big-ticket items. Uh, But even on an agricultural standpoint, uh, what they agree to buy or say they're going to buy, and even whatever they agree to, enforcement's going to be a big key on this. As we know from our history with China in the past, that can be a challenge. That's exactly right. And if you look over the history, and for, you know, the New York Times did a piece about two weeks ago now talking about kind of the, the history of China since they entered the WTO, and it has been exactly what you described. It's been lots of promises and, and a lot of failed promises at that. And, and on top of that, how do you enforce those promises? And there is not a clear, you know, there's not a clear path to figure out how do we enforce those, how do we enforce China to do whether it's on they promise to buy goods for the U.S. or do they do, do they comply with you know the sanctity of a contract, with intellectual property law, copyright law, trademark law, stuff like that. I think that's all, you know, all that has to be dealt with. And, and you know, it's just that's an extremely difficult thing to try to do um, in this sort of environment that we're in right now. And, 
And when you get into, and, and that's the other piece, is that you are now making unilateral trade agreements with China or with Japan or whoever, you know, whoever the case might be, the EU. And so you don't have a standard across all, all trading platforms. And so that makes it even more complicated versus a multilateral where everyone complies by the same rules. And so if, if you know, if the rules aren't adjust, you know, aren't followed, then you have a number of people who are also being harmed by those rules not being followed. So it just makes it much more complicated and much more difficult to enforce in a, in so a let's unilateral say, situation. Let's say they announce a deal next month. It'll probably yep. be short on details. We won't have a lot of specifics. <laughs> uh, just just yep. an announcement of a deal. Uh, how do you think the markets will react to that? Oh, I think you get. I think when you look at, and we'll focus on beans because that's where all the, you know, that's where it's going to happen. I think the markets will be up. You know, I'm kind of looking at that 30 to 50, 35 to 50 cent type of move up on beans. Uh, you'll probably get a dime, maybe 15 cents on corn. Uh, but I think one caution is, you know, China's never really taken that much corn from the United States. If you go back over history, when we thought they were going to take a lot, and you look at the the quantity of what they take versus what we ship as total is pretty small. So I think this is all focused on beans. But again, I think you know it's you know it's a it's a small it's a quick it's a quick hit. Um, we move up, and then the, the market quickly realizes, boy. And you look at the timing now. You know, you got the Brazilian crop coming on, and that that crop's going to be one to be bought and buy by China because it's going to be the most plentiful and the cheapest crop out there at that moment in time. And it's going to be very difficult for the United States uh, to make up that, you know, lost lost bushels, you know, in the, the last half of the crop year when you're competing directly with Brazilian beans coming off coming out of harvest. So if so it's I a thirty it's, to fifty a thirty to fifty cent jump if there's a signing of a deal, yep. is that that marketing opportunity, that that selling yep. opportunity you were talking about? Absolutely. I think that's where you, and you have to get your orders in now. Don't wait. You know, get, be there because if you, if you hesitate, you may not get them. You may not get that opportunity. And that's, that's, that's the other key to this is put your orders in. Where do you think that market's going to go? Have a view of that. Put those orders in place and then just, and just wait and be ready. And then that way, because you know what you put in, you, and you will know when you get hit because you're going to be the first one in line to get hit. And that's, because if you wait, you may not have the opportunity or be able to get there fast enough to get it done. Talking with That's Steve Nicholson, key. grain and oilseeds analyst for Robo AgriFinance. So, Steve, a lot of numbers last week, a lot of projections yep. at the USDA Outlook Conference. Uh, the numbers from last year and the numbers they're projecting for this year all evolve right around what happens with China. Yeah, that's that's sort of interesting. When you start looking at all the numbers, and you know the, the initial view was the numbers were pretty kind of not very kind of like the February, all the numbers out in February, kind of a yawn or not anything major there. And then you start digging into this and you look at this and go, well, there's you know there's some things here to be concerned about. One is yeah, they're assuming the tariffs stay in place um, through the continuation of this forecast, so that that gives you a pretty dismal start right off the bat. Um, you know they are. They are fairly optimistic on, you know, some of the numbers when you look at, you know, some of the demand, supply and demand numbers. You look at beans, you know, they're still relatively optimistic about exports going forward, you know, that they'll be, they'll be over 2 million or, two, you know, they'll be close to 2 million. And you're thinking, well, that seems pretty optimistic that you would see that kind of move on beans, um, you know, in 1920 if you're still going to have, you know, tariffs in place. Um, but you look at corn – 
And I think you have to, I think the other piece, and they've kind of telegraphed this a little bit, is that, and we've talked about this as well in some of our, in some of our publications, is that you look at overall corn demand, it doesn't get a lot, there's not a lot of upside. Um, it's fairly flat. You know, ethanol numbers are fairly flat um, from year to year. And they talk about that a little bit more, about why they think that is. Um, feed and residual, that's where the, the, the big piece is feed residual. And the demand for feed will be good. But when you look at, you know, other domestic demand, which is pretty much equal, you know, 2 million, 2 billion more, more uh, than feed, you know, that's a pretty flat number from last year. And so corn continues to hang up there, that 1.6, 1.7 billion bushel, bushel number. Um, but I do think, you know, on the bean side, I think they're a little optimistic that you know, exports are going to be above two, two billion when you still have tariffs in place. Um, I think that's optimistic because I, I, my guess is when they sat down and did work through some of this, you know, they thought, well, we, if tariffs are in place, then exports aren't going to be as robust as we thought. Um, then they, they probably came out with an ending stock that was probably pretty high that they had to say, okay, what do we got to do to keep ending stocks from going higher? Um, or, or being flat into 1920. And, you know, with even though harvested acres are down and yield is down, you're coming in with such a huge carryover, it's very difficult to use that carryover up um, if you're, you know, it's just hard to get rid of that as you go forward. You've been out on the road in meetings talking with farmers. What are they saying? Yeah. Well, you know, I would say a couple things. I, they still... They're still supporting the president, but I, I would tell you I think their patience is wearing thin. Uh, they want to see this thing solved and move on. Uh, they know they have challenges in front of them, and they're pretty realistic about those challenges, and they're trying to figure out what to do. I would tell you when we look at, you know, you and I are both from the I-States. Uh, when you look at the heart of the Corn Belt, I don't think you'll see a lot of acreage shifts. You know, people are pretty well, you know, settled on their rotations and don't want to disturb those. Um, you know, I think they're worried about next spring, that next spring could be a real challenge uh, with the weather we've had, whether it's too much rain, too much snow, cold, you know, it could be a really tough spring. Uh, people are, I mean, people are, they were worn out after last fall. They're worn out after the winter, particularly in the northern part of the Corn Belt. Uh, they just kind of want to get after and get moving forward. I would, you know, but they're, I'd say their patience is wearing thin at this point. And, and they're realistic about what they have in front of them, and, and they're they're facing that, you know, as they always do, and, and move forward, and we'll make the best of what we got. Yeah, we just heard from uh, meteorologist, DTN meteorologist Bryce Anderson about, you know, saturated mm-hmm. ground, uh, fear of yeah. flooding, yep. and a delayed planting yep. this spring. Uh, yep. You know, yep. that is a real concern, isn't it? Absolutely, and, I, you know, I think that's, you look at places I've been across a lot of the northern part of the Corn Belt, you know, you know, rivers are full already. We had a lot of moisture last fall. There's a lot of snow on the ground as you go north of probably I-80. Um, you've had, and there's more snow on the, on the, you know, got, you know, they received this weekend in some places. And I've seen now we're starting to see forecasts um, here. I'm in St. Louis. We're starting to see forecasts from the National Weather Service of places where there's going to be flooding this spring along the Mississippi already. And so, you know, that's a concern, and it does delay planting, and there is concern. You know, I don't know that that necessarily translates into more beans. I think farmers will be, are willing to plant more corn and will keep planting corn as long as they possibly can um, just because that's what they need to do because of the, the budgets look at corn and go, that looks better. 
um, than soybeans at this point, and that you know people have been disappointed. Not everybody, but bean yields aren't don't have the potential that corn does to move forward. We will see what happens, Steve. Good to talk with you. Thanks right. a lot. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Mike. Have a good one. Take care. Steve Nicholson, Vice President, Robo Research Food and Agribusiness, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst. All right, with all the talk and optimism about a deal with China, we'll talk with Erin Ennis, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. Get her perspective next on AOA. We're live on the red carpet, waiting for the next generation Credence soybean. There he is. Oh, Ed, look, it's Credence Liberty Link GT27. I know, Adna. He's got elite genetics. You gotta love his four bushel per acre yield advantage. And he's both Liberty and glyphosate herbicide tolerant. Definitely the year's hottest performer. Ask your Credence retailer about the new Credence Liberty Link GT27 soybeans. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Lots of excitement, lots of optimism that we're close to getting a deal done with China. Could be next month. The deadline's been extended, and all the talk about the big deal to come. Let's talk with Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. Aaron, do you share in this optimism and excitement? Well, uh, it's hard not to be optimistic when the two presidents are talking nicely and talking about not increasing tariffs. So we are still waiting to get some of the details, but it does seem like they're on the right path. We've been talking here on the show today about uh, a question about whatever deal they come up with about enforcement. Do you see that as a a big issue and how big a challenge will that be? That is a great place to focus um, the discussion because it is going to be important. Kind of setting aside what the history might be of China's compliance with various agreements, President Trump and Ambassador Lighthizer have been very clear since this administration began that they are skeptical that China uh, implements its trade agreement. So we know that this is a bottom line issue for the for the Trump administration in particular. What it looks like is going to be open to discussion. I suspect this is one of the issues that is holding up why they haven't finalized a deal yet, because USTR um, is probably going to want something where the United States gets to evaluate whether China's compliant has met with whatever its obligations are. China is probably wanting to make sure that it has a say in what it has done to comply with that. In some ways, those things should be reconcilable, but the process of, of how they agree on what that compliance looks like is going to make it a determination about then what in what the enforcement actions can be. Do you think they've really come close to some kind of agreement on things like intellectual property and things like that, or will this more be a general a framework to allow those talks to go on? So I, I think they have come to agreement on some of the intellectual property rights issues. In addition to enforcement, the other one that we have heard pretty consistently is ones that they were still having to work on were issues of technology transfer. Those are the instances where, um, usually not at the central government level, but sometimes at the provincial or local level, officials might tell uh, foreign companies that in order for an investment to be approved, they would need to move or transfer some of their technology 
technology into China for it. Those things aren't done generally in accordance with the law. They tend to be informal requests, and as a consequence, it's really hard to police them. So I think those two issues, enforcement and technology transfer, and the enforcement related to technology transfer, are likely where they're going to be spending a lot more time. Well, if they're going to announce a deal, it's going to have to be a deal that both sides can somehow claim victory and not appear that they caved into the other, right? That is correct. So it'll be interesting then how how the spin will take place. Both sides will spin it to look most favorable for their particular side. From an agricultural standpoint, of course, there's a lot of hope that they're going to keep buying and buying a lot more. Uh, every time there's a purchase of soybeans, uh, we get excited, although their purchases are far behind what they've been in the past. So they would have to escalate quite a bit just to get us caught up. <laughs> That's true. Well, and keep in mind that, it, you know, for for the ag community, we recognize that the issues just aren't a matter of of, of buying more stuff and, and making up for the lag that we saw in 2018. There are some genuine market access issues for agriculture as well. How China views uh, GMOs and that approval process, how they certify plants that uh, are exporting agricultural products from the the U.S. to China, which um, many companies have concerns that China uses those kinds of processes to limit what can be exported. China increased tariffs on several product categories in 2017 and 2018 beyond the retaliatory tariffs. And even if the two sides come to agreement, if those higher tariffs are in place on things like ethanol or DDG, then are imported products competitive in the market? So these are all the areas that we understand are being discussed by the two governments and that the Department of Agriculture in the U.S. and the Ministry of Agriculture in uh, China are discussing. But those details are going to make a difference in terms of whether these are one-time sales to make up for that backlog or if there's genuinely improved terms for American ag products in China. And this will be a a big-picture look, a long-term look. But do you think, looking forward, Aaron, has all of this, let's say we come to a deal, get signed or agreed, uh, announced next month, has there been any fundamental shift moving forward on how China will do business? Uh, Has this caused them to look other places, establish other uh, relationships that maybe they would not have, or will this not have that big a long-term effect, do you think? Um, you and your listeners probably are much more expert on uh, what you're already seeing in the market. We have seen um, some indications that China is considering diversifying its supplier field. But for the time being, there is no other market in the world that can produce the quality and volume of ag products that, that American producers have. So I, I think that the quicker these issues are resolved, the more comfortable Chinese purchases are going to be that the U.S. is, in, is again, a stable source for the products that they want to buy. But it would not surprise me long term if they also are considering if they can diversify beyond uh, a sole dependence on American uh, producers in those areas so that that if tensions return, they've got some security. How long that takes, though, and and what it would look like to actually produce a a genuine competitor to the the quality and volume of U.S. producers, I don't know. And timing's a big part of it right now. uh, South or We're about to get to where South American beans are, are 
probably the ones they're going to look at first uh, just yep. because of the timing of their harvest and things like that. So uh, that will be a big factor uh, short term anyway in all that. All right, Aaron, thanks a lot. Uh, I guess you know, we have to kind of hold our breath because something could still go wrong, but the, it sounds like it's on the right track to getting some kind of a deal done. It does indeed, but I suspect you and I will have to have many more comments done. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your time and your perspective. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. No problem. Take care. Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President for the U.S.-China Business Council. So it seems like we're headed towards that agreement, but uh, what will the details be, and what about some of those issues, big issues that we've been talking about today, such as enforcement of a trade deal? Hey, tomorrow we're going to get some reaction from the CEO of the American Soybean Association to all this. Ryan Finley will be joining us, and we'll have much more to talk about as well with China and other key issues. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.